Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. I am on the Piccadilly Line platforms at Hoban Station, which I've just discovered Transport for London doesn't consider to be in central London because there's a sign saying trains for central London this way. It's like, if Hoban's not central London, then maybe there isn't a central London. What are you talking about? Anyway, I am this morning, the morning of Friday the 28th of February, I am off to South Kensington because this is it. This is the day we've all been waiting for. I am going for a walk with the independent mayoral candidate and former International Development Secretary Roy Stewart, who left the government over his opposition to a no-deal Brexit in the autumn of 2019 and has since become famous for, for his, well, walking about the place while trying to get elected as the independent candidate for Mayor of London. I've been looking forward to this. He inspired this entire project. It'll be interesting. Let's see what happens. Here we go. Here's the train. So we're here in a lovely cafe on the Brompton Road. We were going to go for a walk, but it is unfortunately um, typical London weather. So there's a, another campaign promise broken already. But anyway, I'm here with Rory Stewart, independent candidate to be mayor of London. Rory, how's the campaign going? Well, I'd say this is not a very auspicious start. I mean, as, as the walking candidate, to be sheltering from the freezing rain is it's not really a very good sign. So I got to say it's pretty pr- pretty embarrassing humiliating beginning to my great new statesman podcast it is like the whole reason i wanted to do this is because like, i also spend a lot of my time walking aimlessly around london well i don't even have a campaign to do that's just that's just what i what i enjoy it seemed like something we should obviously try and do and yet here we are having a having a coffee you're going to eat some porridge let's talk about the campaign so i guess the first question is you know why why are you here you're obviously your international development secretary you left the government because of brexit you left the conservative party because of brexit what made you think that the obvious next step was to run to be an independent mayor of london it begins with london london's a miracle but with all its miraculous nature and genuinely it is a miracle you know it's the prow of the boat of history first city to industrialize first city to deindustrialize, and now a city where 38% of Londoners, like me, were not even born in the United Kingdom, right? And less so with me, but in general, this is actually the incredible potential and energy and example and leadership that London is showing to the world of how that simple fact makes us 
world beating, the way that we handle that, the way that that has unlocked opportunities for us. Nevertheless, the next 10 years is not going to be an easy time for London. We can see this in very short term when you think about the possible challenges that something like coronavirus even this week might pose. But the longer term, if you think about what we have to do in terms of climate change over the next 10 years, right, what would it mean to go carbon neutral by 2030? Brexit, however you voted, I voted Remain, but however you voted, you've got to accept that there are going to be serious challenges to London in terms of how you adjust to Brexit. And that's before you get on to robotics, quantum computing, nanotechnology, and what that's going to mean, AI, for the way in which this city in 2030 is going to be completely different to the city we know today. And so my argument is that you need a mayor who is very, very interested in change and who's quite brave and who's pretty effective. And I feel there is so much potential in the role of the mayor to actually protect people, yes, keep them safe, get the basics right, but also unlock this city, transform this city, find the potential of this city, and find the potential of the city in a way even greater than what we've got at the moment. I mean, it's a strange thing to say because obviously I, like everyone in the city, feel incredibly proud of what this city is, you know, what it's achieved. But to stay on top of its game, to really fulfill everything it could mean for Britain and the world over the next 20, 30 years, I think needs a quite different form of leadership. That's a good argument for a particular type of mayor. I'm sure we'll come on to... Oh, your porridge has arrived. That's exciting. Is it possible, please, to have it without... Can I... Oh, it's fine. I just want a plate to put... Oh, that's fine. No problem. I just want to take the bananas off. I'm very happy. It's not my problem. It's fine. Really, it's fine. I'll give you... I can remove them if you want. No problem. Okay. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you. On we go. That was a nice banana introduction to the podcast. So just explain what the listener is getting here. The listener is getting me removing bananas from the top of my porridge. And this is me showing that I'm an effective mayor that takes decisive action. I, w- I was going to say, Nick, we should cut that bit, but I think actually, given you're narrating it, we might as well leave it in. It's a nice bit of colour. So that's a compelling case for why London needs a particular type of person as mayor, perhaps. But I mean, I, I guess two questions. Like, firstly, why do you not think either Sadiq Khan or, the, or your former party colleague Sean Bailey can play that role? And secondly, why, why you, as opposed to, there's, you know, nine million people in the city. Why you specifically? Okay, so two things. Sadiq Khan is somebody who has viewed this role almost as though he was an ambassador for London. He's primarily focused on communicating values. He's not very focused on delivery. That's clear both in terms of the way that he approaches his job as police and crime commissioner for London. He's not somebody who's particularly focused on getting a grip on crime. He hasn't managed to manage the finances of Transport for London, and he's added £800 million this year alone to the debt burden of Transport for London. He's up to about £14 billion worth of debt. But I think more fundamentally, he's somebody who has strengths as a politician. He's a skillful party politician. But he's not somebody who's comfortable managing or running things. And one of the great ways of seeing this is that the great mayors of the world that's New York, Barcelona, Paris, are people who in personality terms say, we can do this, we know how to do this. They tend to talk about what they can do. We have a mayor who talks about what he can't do. He spends a lot of time saying he doesn't have any power, it's not his fault, it's somebody else's fault, it's the fault of austerity, it's the fault of cuts, and has spent four years essentially selling a line that the mayor is powerless. 
truth of the matter is that the budget of the mayor is 18 billion pounds a year. It's bigger than the GDP of 76 countries. And he is the chair of Transport for London. He is in charge of the Metropolitan Police. And he has an enormous leadership potential to harness the power of universities, civil society, businesses, well beyond the budget that he has. And mayors all over the world are showing how that can be done. So on that question, can he do it? Obviously he can't. I mean, all you have to do is ask people about his responsibilities. Do you feel safer than you did four years ago? Is your commute better? Is your housing more affordable? And the answer clearly to those three is no. And not a particular criticism of him as an individual. It's just a way of saying, for better or for worse, he's not somebody who focuses on getting things done. Okay, but um, there is a Tory candidate in the race. I know he's often forgotten in these conversations, but Sean Bailey does exist and is running. Couldn't, couldn't he be the sort of transformative mayor that, that London needs? Well, he's running in the race. He's got a chance to make his own case. I'm very happy for him to make his case and be allowed to make his case. I haven't yet particularly been convinced that he can show us anything he's done over the last 20 years, which suggests that he's somebody who has the experience of running very large budgets, who really understands how to deliver and get things done, or is able to prove that he's turned around violent crime. So why you? I mean, you were an MP for Cumbria somewhere, wasn't it? Why, why sort of go to the other end of the country for your next, your next campaign? Well, let, let's take two things. Why me? Fundamentally, I'm a Londoner, but I'm a Londoner who has experience delivering in Britain and all over the world. So if we take crime in London, crime in London is very, very sadly at a very bad level. The homicide rate is the highest level it's been for 11 years. And that's something that I experience when I visit a mother, I look at photographs of her beautiful son bouncing on a trampoline and hear how he was stabbed 20 yards from her front door. It's something that find even in more straightforward ways with the number of people who are mugged and have their telephones taken off them or who've been burgled in their houses. And it can be turned around. And the reason I know that is that I took over a situation as the prisons minister, which felt very, very similar. Between 2013 and 2018, when I took over as the prisons minister, violence in prisons had gone from about 7,500 violent assaults a year to 31,000 violent assaults a year. Tripled. And people said when I arrived in that job, much as Sadiq Khan does about his job at the moment, that there's nothing that you can do about it, that there are deep, complex causes, this is all about central government cuts and resources, and indeed my predecessor in the job said there's nothing you can do, there's no money, keep your head down, hope you get reshuffled. As soon as I arrived on the landings, it was obvious to me that this could be turned around, and it could be turned around much more quickly than people believed. And that was firstly about my saying, I will resign unless I reduce violence in prisons in 12 months. I brought in a brigadier from the army. We set up an ops room. We focused on the 10 most challenged prisons. We drilled down into the data. I got on the landings with the prison officers, shadowed them on their shifts from before seven in the morning. We got right down to rewriting the checklists and we reduced violence. We turned that graph around within seven months. We can do the same in London, and it begins with tripling the number of uniformed police on the streets. But the point is this. It isn't that I'm talking good game, right? All these candidates could say that. Incidentally, they're not saying that, but they could say that. The difference is I know how to do it. I've managed uniformed organizations before. I understand how you do this. I love police officers. I get 
how training works. I get the difference between somebody patrolling the street who's going through the motions and somebody who's doing it actively and intelligently and developing the right community relations. I understand the tensions between putting all the money into bureaucracy in the centre and getting people out on the streets. Because fundamentally, for the last almost 30 years of my life as a public servant, I have largely been somebody who hasn't been a professional politician, but somebody who has managed and done things. My reputation, I think, if you talk to anyone who worked with me as a minister in the House of Commons, was not particularly as a political figure. I wasn't a very party political figure. I wasn't very interested in party politics. My reputation was as somebody who, when the floods happened, got straight out there within an hour standing in the flood water, in prisons, on the landing, offering to resign. As soon as I took over as the environment minister, bringing in the plastic bag tax. These are the kind of things, kind of experiences that I would bring to running London. But what about the idea that, you know, there isn't a mayor in Cumbria now, but there could be one day. Could you not have been agitating for that or, like, you know, fighting for the regions a little bit? The truth is that I am somebody who, like most people in London, has a mixed life. I'm somebody who spent time in the north of England. I spent time outside the United Kingdom. And in other ways, I'm very, very, very much a Londoner. I, I don't talk much about that because I think a Londoner is a choice. Anybody who wants to call themselves a Londoner, even if they've only been in the city for two years, I would feel proud to welcome as a Londoner. But if you're interested in my own personal story, I still live in the same house that I lived in as a baby. I walk here in London. I, I delivered my own son on the bathroom floor of that house. I walk my son to the same little school that my father walked me to when I was five years old. My grandmother was a Wimbledon councillor. My grandfather was a GP in South London. Between the wars, he looked after patients through the Blitz, and my time depth in London is deeper than that. I mean, my ancestor was Lord Mayor of London in 1360, but the reason that I don't talk about that, right, talk about that London dimension, is that I celebrate the fact that 38% of people who live in London were not born in the United Kingdom. And I hate the idea that people get into a game of who's a Londoner, who's not a Londoner because I think it's deeply, deeply, deeply misleading, and it gives a completely fake sense of any of our lived experience. I mean, even that story that I've told you is only a partial misleading truth, because yes, I'm back in the same house I was in as a baby, but in between, I lived for a year in Hampstead, I lived for three years in Covent Garden, I've lived in Islington, I've lived in Holland Park, stayed in Stockwell. So, like everybody in London, it's a complicated thing, and I think there's something a bit odd about taking a massive, mobile, diverse, global city and trying to insist on the sort of identity that you would associate with somebody living in the Outer Hebrides. So let's, let's move the conversation on. You're talking about having slept in lots of different places. So that gives me a lovely segue to the fact that this is, this is part of your campaign strategy right now. You're, you're spending a night a week sleeping somewhere else. You're also, you know, you started the campaign by, by walking everywhere. This is not the standard way political campaigns run in this country. Like, why, what, what inspired this kind of strategy? A belief that we need to get much closer to people. That the problem with politics is that it is very isolated. It's politicians sitting at the top of a pyramid in an ivory tower and buried often under paperwork behind a desk, whereas actually... The real responsibility of a mayor is to be with people in their boroughs, spending serious time with them, experiencing life as they see it. And that that's something you need to do every week. It's not enough to say, 
in my past life, I knew that. You know, I did that four or five years ago. You lose touch very quickly, unless every week I am in a different person's house spending the night. I lose immediately the touch and the challenge that I got last week in a homeless shelter in Bromley, or that I'll get tonight when I'm going to be up in North London staying in sheltered accommodation for older women, or that I got two weeks ago in Newham, because these are very unique experiences. It's uh, 14 hours that I spend with somebody, literally being in their own surroundings, dining with them, eating people open up, reveal things in a way that they don't reveal when you knock on a door. And for a politician, that's very, very precious because there are so many things that stop politicians actually touching the public. Some of them formal, some of them informal, some of them psychological, some of them bureaucratic. And the only way through is to literally put yourself in somebody's house. So what sort of things have you learned from this experience that you didn't know before? If we take the example of um, where I stayed in the homeless shelter in Bromley last week, it's partly the practice of living through someone, something with someone. So laying out the beds, which we got out, we were in a, a village hall, got the beds out at 10 in the morning, woke up just before 6 to clear away the beds again, mop the floor, clean the toilets. I realized that one of the men in that shelter had been there for three and a half years and that this wasn't, there was nothing for him to do from the moment we cleared the beds away at six in the morning to the moment that they were laid out again at 10 in the evening because the hall is then locked. It's an empty hall that's used for scouts and other stuff. Second example, I think which really mattered to me is that it was very clear to me that Bromley Council, I think was saying at the time, according at least to the volunteers there, that they had only four homeless people in the borough. There were 12 people in that homeless shelter with me. And if the council had come out and sat on the edge of their beds and talked through what their problems were, quite a lot of those problems could have been fixed in a few hours. Some of these people are simply unlucky. Some of them have got a short-term problem with paperwork or housing or relationship. Some of them need more serious counselling. Some of them might have mental health issues, addiction issues. But these are things that are eminently soluble. And when I talk about why you need a mayor who wants to do things, it's partly because I can see that Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, has halved rough sleeping in 18 months. Drives me absolutely bananas. When I say I'm going to halve rough sleeping, everybody says, you can't do it because of austerity, because of cuts, because of the central government. If that were true, how come Andy Burnham's managed to halve rough sleeping in Manchester? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You've just unveiled quite a, a detailed housing plan, actually. Do you want to tell us about, you know, how obviously housing is a much broader crisis in this city than, than homelessness. What's, what's in your housing plan? How are you going to get stuff built? The big unlocked potential of London is the fact that the Mayor of London owns 5,500 acres of transport for London land, Mayor's land. And at the moment he's selling it off, generally for a short-term cash return. He's eating our money, our land, in order to put it into the running costs of the tube. If I became Mayor, we would stop that on day one. That would become the Mayor's contribution to the Mayor's Building Company. And I would use the Mayor's Building Company to build out affordable housing on that land. And that would be for nurses, for teachers, for key workers, for young families, for older people. And it would be owned and managed by the Mayor's Building Company for the long term, for the people of London. And sorry, affordable housing is one of those phrases that's been kind of slightly ruined by politics. When you say affordable housing, what exactly are we talking about here? Are we talking subsidised? Are we talking social housing, shared ownership? What's, what exactly do you mean? The core of this housing, majority of it, needs to be genuinely affordable. By that I mean linked to your income, not linked to the average rental price. So linked to what you can actually afford to pay. The problem with what the mayor's doing is twofold. Firstly, he promised to build 150,000 affordable homes and he's built barely 20,000. Problem number one. Problem number two, these homes that he's building are often 80% of market rent. 80% of market rent is completely unaffordable. It's a meaningless thing. So I would build the houses more quickly. I would retain ownership of these houses and I would deliver them at a level that was affordable in relation to your income, not in relation to your rent. Just one last question on this. Public authorities often come in for a lot of stick for the fact they are essentially selling their assets off. Like we're seeing this in a lot of uh, labor run in the London boroughs. As I understand it though, that's because there is a sort of fiduciary duty to kind of maximize the value you get out of your assets, right? And if, if you're an inner London borough, you probably own a lot of expensive land. And is that not a factor in what, what Sadiq Khan is doing here? Like, is it actually possible to say, no, we're not going to do that? 100% possible. 100% possible. You're absolutely right. There is a treasury theory that you need to get best value for the land. But that completely allows you to keep that land. Right? You're not forced to sell that land. Keep that land and build housing on that land. But if it's subsidized social housing, that's not best value. You could make more money out of that land. It's just like... So that's not actually how the rules work. Okay. The rules work that if you're selling it off for cash in a public tender, you have to reassure people that you're not selling it corruptly and therefore that the person who's bought the land has given the public sector the best possible value for that land. But if the public sector is keeping that land, using it for a public benefit, you're not trapped by those rules. Obviously, there's a lot of people in this city, many of whom listen to this podcast, who are in, in the private rental sector, which is not always great. What could the mayor's office do for, for guys like that? 
Well, the first thing is much, much tighter, better regulation. Landlords are often not treating people correctly. They're not fulfilling their obligations to their tenants. And worse, and I'm coming across cases in London of uh, many people, many of whom are not, you know, for example, Polish men in Neeson living in sheds in the back of gardens. This is completely illegal and it needs to be properly regulated and managed. So a lot of the answer to the problems is proper regulation, proper inspection. We could talk about housing all day, I, I often do, but we are, we are short of time, so let's move on. Obviously, another big area of Merrill Powers, probably even bigger, is, is transport. Unless I've missed something, you've, you haven't really sort of unveiled huge numbers of, of transport plans. What can you tell us about what, uh, what a Stuart mayoralty would mean for transport for London? You're absolutely right. I've laid out my police and security strategy, laid out my rough sleeping strategy, laid out my housing strategy. The transport strategy is coming in two weeks' time, and I'm unfortunately not giving you a preview of it here. Is it worth saying at this point that this podcast won't be out for another 13 days? I'm not going to reveal the details, that, but I think the fir- to give you a sneak preview if you're interested, the first simple fact to understand about Transport London is that you need to use data much better and have much more flexible pricing to make sure that as we make the transition to a carbon neutral economy, the burden of that doesn't fall on the poorest people in society and that broadly speaking, the wealthier pay and the polluters pay. So you can expect a policy where you will see me going after unnecessary Amazon freight deliveries coming in at peak time and congesting our city. You will seek me going after some of these supercars that you can see outside the window. And you'll see me leaning into innovative solutions on public transport. Okay, let's do an easy one. I am personally very big on the idea that the overground network should have separate line identities. Each should have their own name, maybe a different colour. Can we here and now get your support for this plan? Absolutely. Great plan. I'm stealing it straight away. You seriously steal that one? I'm going to do it. And we're going to come up, maybe if you, if you can give me two minutes on the podcast, we could even generate some fun names for these lines and think through how to do it. And I want to put it all up on the Tube network so it's all visible. We're going to rewrite the Tube map of London so the full overground network is visible alongside the underground network. And then I'm going to put a lot of that overground underground because I'm going to build beautiful houses on ugly rail lines. Okay, now that's interesting. This is, you do hear about plans like this. Is that actually possible? Can you do decking to create more land in London using railway lines like that? 100%. You need specialist building contractors. It's more expensive, of course, than building in a conventional way, but you absolutely can do it. So you and I are going to work together, not just to make the overground named like the underground or appear on the map like an underground, but we're going to make an underground. Yeah, I should say at this point that Skylines is politically neutral. <laughs> the new statesman obviously has a long history of being on the left, etc. Moving on, yeah, just a fairly open question. What else will you want to be talking about during the campaign? To talk about a human city, by which I mean a city of 700 villages in which you are never more than 10 or 15 minutes walk or cycle ride from a great community facility. Youth zone, community centre, same would apply. You'd been same distance from green space, same distance from a thriving high street. I want, and this is part of our response to climate, to feel that you don't need to travel halfway across the city in order to access wonderful things. I want vibrant neighborhoods. 
and I want to bring them alive, and I want to use digital technology to unlock volunteering within those neighbourhoods. What about, uh, I'm just thinking of things that we, we should talk about, cycling perhaps. Do you have any big ideas on London's cycling infrastructure? Is that in the transport plan that we're, we're going to wait on? You can expect me to say a lot about cycling on the transport plan. Okay, okay, let's go back to some, some broader questions to wrap up. As I said earlier, you started this campaign with, with walking. Why walking? What was the, we kind of talked about your sort of sleeping out strategy. We didn't really talk about the walking stuff. What was it that made you think that was the way of kind of approaching sort of new phase of your political career? The thing that defines us as humans is the fact that we have two feet and walk. Very distinctive. That goes right the way down to the anatomy of our big toe and the shape of our pelvis. So getting your feet on the ground is something that has distinguished us as a species for about four million years. But it has a powerful symbolic element too because putting your feet on the ground, getting out in the fresh air, exposes you to the elements, to the architecture, to the public space, and above all, it leaves you open and vulnerable to people. People who can come up to you, who can poke you in the chest, who can challenge you, who can shout at you, who can tell you that you're angry, and who you, as a public servant, have to respond to, be accountable to. So for me, walking is a biological activity. Walking is a spiritual activity, but above all, walking is an act of public service. What's your favourite walk in London that you've done? Since I walk everywhere, I'm always a bit rubbish at answering this. I mean, one that I enjoyed very much, walking with my friend Felix, was walking from Paddington Basin to Hackney along the canal system. It's a lovely walk. But I've had you know, a lot of fun yesterday walking through a less glamorous area of London. I was walking through back streets of Hampstead. I love walking through the city. I actually quite enjoy walking through the edge of Streatham and Tooting recently. Okay, um, just two more things I want to ask. Firstly, you've, you've kind of said a number of times that you think Sadiq Khan is leaning a bit on the idea that austerity prevents him from doing things. You voted in favour of a lot of austerity policies when you are an MP. Do you still think that was the right choice for the country? I definitely felt that austerity went too far. I said that. So as a Member of Parliament in the House of Commons, I publicly opposed police cuts. I also, as a minister at the dispatch box, said that we'd cut too many prison officers and in fact drove through to get another 4,300 officers recruited back on the lines. But I also believed that the government needed to do something to sort out the public finances, that the situation 2008-2009, that debt burden, which was a government which was spending £140 billion a year more than it was taking in in revenue, couldn't be a long-term solution for the country. And I think the final thing I'd say is, in all the jobs that I did in government, I accepted that there are resource constraints, that there are problems of power, but that what you want in a minister or a mayor is not somebody who spends their time blaming other people and complaining about the hand they've been dealt, but somebody who plays the hand they've been dealt with confidence and power and to the best of their ability. And London deserves better than a mayor who keeps saying, it's not my fault, it's the fault of the central government. You do not hear that from great mayors. Right? Great mayors all over the world suffer the same problem. If you talk to the mayor of Paris, who isn't from Macron's party, if you talk to the mayor of Barcelona, talk to the mayor of New York, 
all of them are in environments where the central government is not giving them as much as they'd like. But they don't talk about it. What they talk about is what they are going to do for you and how they're going to do it. And a sign of strength in a public leader is somebody who says, I'm going to do this, this is my fault, I'm sorry, and if I don't deliver for you, I'm going to resign. This is a very compelling argument, but I mean, my last question, but to be blunt, Sadiq Khan is going to win, isn't he? He's going to win a second term. Do you really think you have a chance of beating him? Well, it'd break my heart if he wins the second term, because I was proud when Sadiq Khan was elected as mayor of London. I thought that was a great moment for London. But I think London, politely, deserves better. We are a great city. We are facing a testing 10 years ahead. We should not settle for a mayor who sees this role largely as a symbolic role. We should demand from our public servants people with a track record of doing things. If you go into that ballot box, you need to ask yourself, what is he going to do in the next four years, right? What is he going to do if we become a city that is so complacent that it votes again for a mayor who hasn't done anything and who isn't promising to do anything just because he seems not too bad, that's not the kind of city I want to live in. But, sorry, I said that was the last question. This is definitely the last question. What's your actual path, though? I mean, it's, it's a two-stage system. Like, how do you get to the second round and then be the, the winning candidate there? What do you... My great strength is this is a, a not a first-past-the-post system, second-preference system. It's like the presidency of France, and I have the same advantage that Macron had when he ran as an independent. And as an independent candidate in the centre, if Sadiq Khan gets 40 points in the first round and I get, let's say, 33 points in the first round, and Sean Bailey gets, let's say, 20 points, which is roughly what he's been sitting on for the last two years, his votes are then reallocated because all the candidates except the top two are knocked out. Those 20 points are much more likely to come to me as a central candidate than Sadiq Khan, and I would then win in the second round. So this is very, very, very winnable. Very winnable. But to win, Londoners have to want to take a risk. Leave these old, tired political parties behind. Want a mayor who's going to act. Want to join me in wanting to halve rough sleeping, make the cities safe, build that affordable housing, get the transport system we deserve, and have a mayor who is energetic enough, experienced enough, intelligent enough to deal with all the problems of the future, coronavirus, Brexit, digital technology, AI, and that's the package that I'm offering. And I think it is something that London can do. We can do it. We know how to do this. Roy Stewart, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show. And I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.